Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. This is your host, Stephen Novella, President of the New England Skeptical Society. And with me, as always, is my panel of skeptics, Perry DeAngelis. Hello, everyone. Evan Bernstein. Hi, all. And Robert Novella. Good evening, everyone. This week we have a special guest with us, uh, Dr. Michael Shermer. Uh, Dr. Shermer is the uh, director of the Skeptic Society, the publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He is also the author of a column in Scientific American called, can you guess what it's called? Skeptic. Uh, he is the author of many books, uh, The Science of Good and Evil, The Borderlands of Science, Denying History, How We Believe, and I believe his, his first skeptical book, Why People Believe Weird Things, still a, a classic in the genre. Uh, hello and welcome, Michael. Hi, good evening. Thanks for joining us this week. You're welcome. So I thought that we would, since we're, we're dealing with an expert skeptic, I thought that we would do our science or fiction segment with the guest, and, and Michael agreed to play along. Uh, so we'll start off with that segment. But first, a little bit of follow-up from last week. Now, you, if you remember the first science or fiction segment that we did, uh, I pre what my fake science news item was that NASA scientists had discovered an Earth-sized planet. And within a few days, NASA discovered an Earth-sized planet. I remember. You remember that, which was, you know, we, we joked about how prophetic that was. Well, last week, you guys remember the, the, uh, the fake story from last week was that scientists had successfully frozen a dog in order to, to test, you know, medical technology. This week, um, reported on June 27th, was that U.S. scientists have succeeded in reviving dogs after three hours of clinical death. Um, they brought them down to near freezing temperature. They didn't quite freeze them, but they did bring their, their body temperature down to a few degrees Celsius. So um, two for two on, <laughs> on predicting uh, future news stories. So Think don't appreciate your own power of uh, precognition, obviously. Obviously not. So when I give Randy a cost. Yeah, when I, when I, I hope you'll support my application to Randy's million-dollar giveaway. And good luck repeating it. So we'll say, well, this week... There's an animal theme to this week. So I'm going, I'm going to give you three amazing animal facts. And you have to tell me which one of the three is not Ooh. real. Are you ready? Yeah. It's time to play Science, Science or Fiction. fiction. <laughs> Topic the number one, or claim number one, is that koala bears never drink. I'll, I'll name all three, and then, then we, I'll let you guys tell me which ones you think are, are real and fake. The second one is that a bird by the name of the city tern can remain aloft for up to 10 years at a time, eating, drinking, and even sleeping on the wing. Topic number three is that chimpanzees have been observed communicating with each other in written symbols. Those are your three amazing animal facts. Who would who'd like the first crack at it, Bob? You've been, you've been two for two so far. We'll, we'll let Michael go first. Well, I'll take number one, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> you think number one's the, you think number one's the fake one? Yeah. So you think that koala bears never drink is fake, and the other two are real? Right. Hey, what's the reason for your choice? Well, number three is true, and number two seems so improbable that you wouldn't have made that one up. So it must be true. Now the first one's not a trick question, Steve. You're not talking about booze. <laughs> no, it's not a trick. They they never drink. Period. Period. I don't know. I you know I think that it's possible an animal can get enough liquid from what it eats. Uh, I I mean I guess that's possible. Uh, number two sounds way out there. Number three seems reasonable. Uh, you know, I'm not a creationist, so it's it, it seems <laughs> somewhat reasonable. You know, I'll say number two is is not real. Okay, you think number two is not real, Bob? I think I agree. Um, I think I read somewhere that that koalas never drink, so that that seems uh, pretty doesn't seem too unreasonable to me. Ten years at a time in loft. I mean, I've heard of some um, long duration flights for certain species, but ten years, I think, is really pushing it. I'm I'm going to go with that one. 
Okay, Evan? Well, Michael, I'm sorry. I hate to leave you alone with your choice of number one, but I'm afraid I have to, I'm afraid I have to choose number two uh, for the, uh, because that one just sounds a lot more improbable, I think, than number one. And, like, I think what, Perry, you observed, what, that it would get the food from, uh, water from the food? I think that's, that's I a think reasonable, that's feasible. Yeah. reasonable. Well, people, people don't realize how, how much water we consume in our food. I mean, just a slice of bread, you would think, oh, there can't be too much water in bread. But a, a slice of bread is like, you know, 30, 40% water. So you can get a lot of water from these things that just don't seem like there's really any water in them. So that's... That makes sense to me. So there you go. I'll, I'll, I'll choose number two. So you're all going to abandon our, our guest for this week. <laughs> well, all right. So with all due respect. The, I have uh, to make so amends for last week for getting the question wrong, getting, choosing the wrong one. Let's start with number one. The koala bears never drink. That is, in fact, true. They do get all of their, their, their fluid, all of their water from the eucalyptus, eucalyptus leaves that they eat. So that one is true. That is an amazing but true animal fact. Number two. Now, who said that number two was wrong? I said number two was wrong. The three of us. All three yeah. of you did. All yeah. three of you did. Number two was the reason why I used this theme for this week. Number two is correct. What? Ten years? <laughs> ten, yes. Between three and ten years as sub-adults. They only land when they mature and it's time to breed. How do they observe that? The sooty turn. Some guys sat there. How was that observed? They they tagged them. I want to see a tag them. I want to see a ten year video of that. <laughs> That's the only the only good enough proof. Yes. Uh-huh. You're right. skeptical of that, are you? Yeah. Uh, oh, num- uh, number three, I you know I always try to cut it close to the edge. Now certainly chimpanzees communicate with each other, and in the laboratory they have been taught sign language, but in the wild they do not use written symbols to communicate with each other. Now, Mike, you said that you thought that that was true. Yeah, I guess I didn't hear you say in the wild. Did well, I said, have you're, I did not say in the wild. I did not say well, in the yeah, wild. Because, um, okay. <laughs> uh, That's because okay. Coco has communicated with symbols to Michael, the gorilla, um, in the lab using sign language. So that's symbolic communication between two. Well, actually, I said I did say written. I did say written symbols. Written symbols. You didn't say written. You just said symbols. Yeah. No, I did say written symbols. So. But that's okay. I mean, that, that was again, I, that was a tough one, and it, it was uh, the, the the devil is in the details. I I, okay. it, I do have I have uh, written in front of me. I thought I read it, you know, word for word what I wrote. Down, but <laughs> you started to say written, and then you said symbols. And maybe it just cut off on my phone. Anyway, okay, maybe, maybe. okay. But <laughs> the uh, again, I do. I, I know I'm dealing with a tough crowd here. I'm not gonna get not gonna get easy ones past you guys. So I always have to just take it one sliver beyond <laughs> yeah, yeah. one sliver beyond. The re- what we definitely got it wrong. Yeah, Steve, I really like this exercise because it, it it points out a lot of different things. Um, and the thing that strikes me the most is that three plausible things. I mean, how are how are the average people on the street going to know the difference? How do they tell the difference between what's what's real and what's and what's not? Um, yeah. Anything that they're fed by the media. Uh, people will absorb, and and the majority of it just happens to be wrong. So be, the psychology experiments show that people believe anything they're told unless it contradicts something they already believe. Correct. But number two is tough. I tell you, when I first heard it, I didn't believe it. I had to I had to really verify it before I would Ten accept that years. one. But what, I knew that would be the one that would get you guys. I was shocked, shocked. Um, but yeah, I guess you know you figure once they can, if they could stay aloft for a few days, you know, eat and sleep on the wing, then they could do it indefinitely, right? Once you get past that threshold of being able to fly asleep, I guess you could yeah, stay aloft forever. That's a so big threshold. It, it sounds dramatic, but once you think about it that way, I wonder how they do it. I wonder if it's like uh, dolphins that actually half their brain sleeps at a time, so they could they had they're like minimally awake, but they are resting at least one hemisphere at a time of their brain. Maybe it's some. I don't mechanism. know. That's a good question. What's the neurology of this? The other possibility right. would be that they have um, some subhemispheric, some primitive neurons in their brainstem right. that just turn on and, and enable them to hold, you know, tone in their wings and, and keep them aloft even when they're when they're they're not conscious. Basically, that, that's an interesting question. So I did get you guys fine, <laughs> finally. <laughs> But uh, thanks for playing, Michael. Thanks for being a good sport. So you have just returned now, from... Now, what if, uh, what if Jane Goodall's team observes this, this week? Right, right. <laughs> uh, 
written communication in the dirt out in the plains of Africa. If they do, if they do, then on next on next week's show, I'm going to predict that a some billionaire dies and and leaves billions of dollars to the Skeptic Society. Uh, That will be my next prediction. Yes, and make it your only prediction. So, uh, as I was saying, you just returned from a trip to the Galapagos Islands? Yep. Tell us about that. It sounds interesting. Oh, well, there was a conference there, the World Summit on Evolution, held on San Cristobal, which is um, the island that Darwin first landed on. So, um, uh, they thought that would be an appropriate place to hold a a conference on evolutionary theory. So, they had all the big guys there, and uh, so, since I was going to speak, Frank Soloway and I decided we'd go ahead and put on a um, tour of eight-day tour of the islands and, and take all these scientists. So that's it, just kind of a tour. And, what did you uh, talk about? Lecture. Oh, uh, creationism and intelligent design theory, <clears throat> my usual stuff. You, um, you, at one point, you, you debated the infamous Dwayne Gish. I, I think, I believe I, I heard a recording of that debate. That's, that's true, right? <laughs> no, that's false. No. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> point number three. Yeah, no, I've debated Gish uh, twice, actually. Oh, was it twice? What do you, what do you think about that? Because you know the, the conventional wisdom among skeptics is that it's really pointless to debate creationists in an open forum. Well, the creationist himself isn't going to change his mind, and the true believers that are in the audience aren't going to change their mind. Uh, and the skeptics already agree with me, but it's the uh, middle group of people, the people that have not made up their minds yet, that we you were able to defend against the Gish Gallup, uh, Michael. Oh, that's no problem. Yeah. Now you okay. just use humor, and if you're a uh, pu- public, if you're a professional public speaker, you can match his wit and, and humor and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's that's not hard to do. Um, it's it's really just kind of getting the points across for those who have not made up. I, their I mind. agree. I think it's it's a very tough thing to do, and I think unfortunately, people who are very good scientists who know evolutionary biology and natural history intimately think that that will carry them through such a debate. They get suckered into it, but they're not expert public speakers or debaters, right. and they don't know what they're up against, and right. they get sucker punched. But you know that's I think why the the marriage of being not only scientifically literate but also skeptically literate and being a, a polished public speaker is what it would take I think to, to stand toe to toe with somebody like Dwayne Gish. You you agree with that basically? I I think that's right. Um, you have to have the knowledge and information, though, but not necessarily just about evolutionary theory, but you have to know what, what it is they are arguing, what their points are. So that's why we publish in Skeptic and in our little How to Debate a Creationist kit um, exactly what their arguments are and what the counterarguments to those are so that people can be informed on not, not evolutionary theory. You can get that from textbooks, but mm-hmm. what it is they're doing, which is different. It's not science. It's something else. Was there a lot of talk at the conference, Michael, about uh, the things that are happening with the school boards, such as currently in Kansas? Yes, it's a concern. People that work in the field find it difficult to believe that anyone can doubt what it is that they're studying. But but they're academics isolated in universities, which are very different environments than the rest of the country, as, as noted politically as well. In these Midwestern towns where there's a university located, the entire town will be surrounded by Bush Cheney bumper stickers, but the university is chock a block full of Kerry bumper stickers, and that tells you something right there. It's not a normal environment. It's not a, a slice of Americana. It's a very slanted view of the world. So they, you know, they don't really know what what, what people are thinking out there. Is that a phenomenon of the United States alone? School um, boards trying to. Yeah, primarily it is. Well, creationism, you mean. Yes. Are you talking about the ivory tower syndrome or of creationism? Uh, cre- uh, creationism. The yeah, school board's trying to, to change to well, water down Darwin. It's it's starting to be exported now by England. I think uh, England is seeing some of it now. A little bit. New England, um, sorry, New Zealand a little bit, Australia a little bit, but it's primarily an American right. phenomenon. Yeah, the soil is not as fertile over there. It's not going to ever grow to the same right. proportions as it is here. No. Michael, what what did you think of the of the strategy of the scientists and not... And not, uh, and not debating the creationists. Um, yeah, well, I respect it, but I think it would have been good to have at least somebody there for the school board members to hear explain right. why. I um, agree. The, fellows, the attorney that they had defending the, the, the current standards 
uh, was okay, gave an impassioned speech, but his, his interviewing of the experts on the other side was a, a little aggressive. It was kind of hostile, and, and uh, it didn't come off well, in my opinion. I, you, you can download the entire transcripts, I'm, I'm sorry, the entire proceedings on tape, uh, on digital, from audible.com. Oh, free. great website. I, I love Audible. There's probably 20 hours, maybe 25 hours worth of listening. Oh, wow. So if you have a lot of free time, then you can <laughs> just put it on your iPod, uh, which is what I did. And I listened to the entire thing. And uh, basically the crux of it was that uh, two things. One is that evolution is a like a religion that is dogmatic and closed-minded and yeah. no criticism is allowed. And two, that... Uh, science doesn't allow anything but natural explanations, and then that's too limiting, and that science should be redefined to include other explanations other than natural. So those are the two things that came out of that 20 hours of, of testimony. And um, so one of the points I made in, in my write-up for Scientific American on that evolution conference I went to in the Galapagos is that, in fact, uh, the field is full of disputation and criticism and denunciations of different theories and uh, arguments and debates. And um, it, it's just it's not that evolution, evolutionary theory is not open to criticism or that scientists are closed-minded or dogmatic or circle the wagons and speak with one voice. It's just that the creationists have nothing important to say about the science itself. So that's why they don't get heard. That's the problem. Yeah, it's a pretty it's a it's a cheap shot to say that a scientific consensus is by definition dogma. No, sometimes it's just a consensus of opinion, you know, based because the facts are overwhelming. You know, the fact that evolution occur- occurred, you know, is pretty well established. Well, um, I mean, some of their criticisms they claim are not being entertained by scientists, but that's just not true. Like, for example, their criticisms of theories on the origins of life. Um, well, the origins of life science is pretty wide open, and there's no general consensus on how it happened exactly so there's lots of different theories and these guys all uh, argue amongst themselves all the big guns were down there at this conference and there was no agreement so when the creationists say uh, oh they have this theory and that you know this darwinian theory well that's really not true in fact um lynn margulis was there and she was arguing that neo-darwinism is dead it doesn't explain anything in her world that she works in so she has her theory of symbiogenesis and so on, and, and so it was anything but a closed-minded, dogmatically everyone's going to agree with each other kind of conference. So that's that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Of course, they feel that way because they're not being heard. But the problem is, is they're not offering any scientific, testable hypotheses, which is gets to the second point, which is that science only allows natural explanations. Well, it's not like there's a committee that allows or disallows by some rule book. There's nobody doing that. It's just that. Anything other than natural explanations just don't produce any testable hypotheses. There's nothing to do with them. There's no science to be done. So when you say, well, I think it's a non-natural explanation for X, whatever the mystery of X is, well, what does that mean? What do you mean non-natural? Supernatural? Paranormal? Um, Intelligent design? God? What what, what do you mean? And there they they don't offer any... Uh, opinions. They just say, well, we don't have that theory yet. We don't have a theory of that yet. Of course, they don't want to use the, the God word because then then, they, right. then the gig is up. So, right. um, so really, if you press them, you don't have to press them very hard. Uh, you, you hit the wall pretty quickly. Their the answer is, I don't know. Well, do, do you you know do you have any speculation? Nope. Well, if it's, you know, do you think it was done? How did how did the intelligent designer do it? Uh, did he use gravity, electromagnetism? Uh, uh, chemical bonding forces. How, how did you know? How did the uh, do it? Uh, Massimo said last week. He asked um, the gentleman's name escaped me. He said, "If you were given a grant to study creation, of what experiments would you do?" Who, who did he ask that to, Stephen? Um, I don't recall who it was. It was some ID proponent. He but said, "Okay, if we if we give you a, a grant to study, what what would you do with it?" And the guy couldn't answer. There's no experiments to be done. Because it's bottom line, it's not science, and and, and you're right, it's not by choice. It's it's a necessity of the the very nature of science itself. Yeah, right. It's just nothing to do there. So that's you know that's the problem. And the ID guys come off pretty good. They sound I thought they they sounded better than our side in the testimony. Frankly, they Ugh. they come off very reasonable. Of you know, shouldn't students hear both sides of the issue? Seems reasonable, and 
gosh, aren't you know? Shouldn't they be? Shouldn't they hear the criticism? Well, they they should. They should already be hearing that. In fact, they, you know, they do. If the teacher's doing their job, the teacher will say, you know, these are the areas where we don't have much data, and it's there's two or three theories, and there's you know the theory of gradualism and the theory of punctuated equilibrium, or there's the theory of natural selection versus group selection, or there's this or that, and you know, those kinds of debates are are very real, and they should be pretty well known to most biologists who teach. So if they're teaching properly, they're already teaching the controversy. Well, I mean, the issue of, I mean, getting back a little bit to the the so-called ivory tower syndrome, that the uh, people in academia don't really understand one concept, and that is that a lot of, you know, cranks and charlatans and true believers and pseudoscientists are not playing by the rules of fair you know, and honest intellectual discourse. So they'll often completely underestimate, really, the, the deception and the distortion of facts that the other side will use. And that, that applies across the board. One uh, area where I, I think, you know, Michael, you've personally encountered a lot is the area of uh, revisionist history or specifically Holocaust denial. I recently came across an article on, on the Internet where, you know, again, somebody really feigning to be, a, you know, a, just a reasonable person uh, who, you know, went to great lengths to explain that he was not a Nazi or not a Holocaust denier. In fact, you know, attempted to tear down piece by piece the, the components of the, of the, of the Holocaust. But what, what has been, and you wrote, this is, this was a, a large part of your book, Denying History, correct? Right. <clears throat> so, um, Although these guys have kind of fallen out of the limelight ever since David Irving lost his libel trial in mm-hmm. England against um, Deborah Lipstadt and her publisher Penguin, they, they've kind of they sort of lost that big battle. That was the turning point for them, and they've lost a lot of membership, and their their impact has gone down considerably. So that's you know good. That's good. Although they're, they're, they're marginalized. I think so. Yeah, they're not like the creationists. Creationists have something else going for them, and that's. Uh, evangelical support from the right, and uh, that's a far bigger threat, I think, than I mean, I, I, revisionist history in general, I, I think, has a, is a broader potential problem for you know how how things are written, how the how the war in Iraq is going to be is perceived and will be perceived. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, there, there you have much touchier subjects of what what just what constitutes revisionist history, right? Or free speech issues like this war Churchill. Professor at Colorado University, Boulder, um, you know, said yesterday that Iraqi that American soldiers in Iraq should, should be shot, or they should shoot their should shoot soldiers. their officers. I think is yeah, what he said. Shoot their officers, Michael. right? Yeah, I think that's so, what he said. So you know, gosh, <laughs> uh, I mean, maybe we've played out the Holocaust revisionist game, but there's the whole subject of history is not a science. Well, this came up in the um, in the Kansas hearings as well that history is not a science. Mm-hmm. There's only one kind of science. It's the experimental science, laboratory science, and anything that doesn't do that isn't science, and therefore it's open and fair game. Well, to that, you just say, okay, so my theory that the Holocaust didn't happen is equal to your theory that it did? Well, no, that's ridiculous. Well, mm-hmm. why is that ridiculous? Well, because we have rules of evidence for historical events. Oh, we do? <laughs> I thought you just said it wasn't a science. So, in fact, there's two kinds of sciences. I mean, there's laboratory and, and field science or something like that, but there's also historical science and experimental science. And historical science is just done slightly differently. You have to use different kinds of comparisons and convergences and, and like a crime detector, uh, a CSI kind of scientist, what you're looking for there is a convergence of evidence from d- different inquiries, lines of inquiry mm-hmm. that point to a particular conclusion, and you just go along until one kind of pops out, and that's what detectives do, of course. That's right. what historians do, and really, evolutionary theory is that it's pieced together from all these different lines of inquiry, such that when a creationist says, you know, points out to some small anomaly that doesn't seem to fit, he thinks that that's going to bring the whole edifice tumbling down, and it won't because that's not what the edifice was built on in the first place. You know, right. You'd have to take down all 10,000 bricks before it would come tumbling down. So, I mean, uh, and, and it is testable. I, another thing that came out of that Kansas thing is that, you know, history is not testable. Yes, it is. If you found, I, I predict, here's a testable hypothesis, that you'll never find uh, mammal fossils in a trilobite bed, a right. Cambrian trilobite bed that's 500 million years old. You never will find mammals. And if you do... 
well, maybe there's one accidental one from an intrusion, from an earthquake or something, and it, you know, it kind of washed down there. But, okay, dismissing that, if you found a lot of them in different areas, well, then something would be seriously wrong with the theory of evolution. But, so there's a testable hypothesis. You can go out and test it, keep digging, keep looking, and tell me if you find anything. And, of course, that's what paleontologists do, and they never find that exception. So that, that, that's an experimental test. And you can mm-hmm. apply that to anything, the Holocaust and Civil War, whatever, any kind of event that happened where none of us were there to, to witness it. That's right. I mean, I think that that's a strategy of the deniers in general that mean specifically to narrow the scope of what is acceptable as science in such a way as to specifically exclude whatever it is that they don't want to be scientific, whether it's creationists trying to exclude evolution or revisionists trying to exclude some other some particular aspect of history. I guess what's, what's so bothersome is when the people on the other side are not willing to admit that they were wrong when it's right. pointed out and it's obvious, and they don't change their tune. You see this with Michael Behe uh, mm-hmm. with his example of the mouse trap and the bacterial flagellum in which he claims these are irreducibly complex, cannot have evolved by Darwinian mechanisms. Well, you know, there's been books and web pages and articles, and it's all over the net. Um, right. You can't miss it. And, and he is, it's there. You're wrong. Yes, I'm wrong. Okay, yeah, but why doesn't he say publicly, okay, I was wrong, I have to revise my theory, which is what any scientist would do, but he's not right. a scientist. <laughs> right, he's not And he's the same thing with David Irving. David Irving got his, got his hat handed to him in this trial where, you know, he claimed certain things about Auschwitz that were just not true. And there's here's the photograph, Mr. Irving. Here you can see the holes right here. Okay, I was right. Wrong. Like there are no gas chambers, right? Right. So he stands there in court. Okay, I was wrong. But then, you know, I saw him a couple months ago. gave a talk, and you know, he didn't admit any of that. He just went right. on like just towing the party line that he always used to say: no holes, no Holocaust, that business. And uh, <laughs> it's like that's dishonest. Because they're not engaged in an honest discourse. They're not searching for the truth. They're defending a position that they, that they hold and will not let go of. So right. when arguments now, that they're using... Scientists do that, too. Scientists do that, too. But the, but the difference is, is that um, eventually they have to change their mind or else they just get dropped out of the whole system. They get marginalized, the, right. The, the science just moves on without them if they don't um, you know, adjust their views to the evidence. And uh, I saw this, a nice example of uh, this. I wrote a column about this was uh, Vin Farage, uh, who was a pretty dyed-in-the-wool multi-regionalist, that is, or is multi- multiple um, origins of, of humans, um, mm-hmm. current humans, races from around the world. Well, then the, the new mitochondrial DNA came in a few years ago, and, 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 and it was just overwhelming that every single one of us on the planet comes from a single population out of Africa, right. therefore supporting the out-of-Africa hypothesis. And he just stated publicly in science right there, I was wrong. Yep. Okay, I I thought this was the theory, but uh, the new evidence comes in, and okay, the other theory is right. So I was wrong. Right. Well, gosh darn, that's how it's supposed <laughs> to work, <laughs> and usually it does. <laughs> yeah, you, you, right, usually it does, and and those that you know stick to their guns despite the evidence are really marginalizing themselves out of the mainstream and, uh, and out of like the guy that uh, promotes uh, facilitated communication with autistic kids, Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. He won't change his mind. I mean, the evidence is just overwhelming, and it's been, it's been overwhelming for over 10 years now. Right. Now, for facilitated communication is basically holding the, the hand of a child who is, has some communication disorder or, or autism or mental re- retardation, and they essentially point out or spell out words on a letter board, and it's been shown repeatedly, you know, very reliably that this technique is just the idiomotor effect. It's basically the, the facilitator is the one who is guiding the hand to the letters, and the, the subject, the, the, the mentally retarded child, is, is no awareness of what's going on. But the, the true believers, you, you cannot convince them with evidence that it's not true. Very sad, very sad to watch those people at work facilitating communication. Shows you the power of belief. It's pretty strong. <laughs> it's very, very, very strong, and that you know, and the, all of these. I mean, we sometimes can laugh at at how silly people can be, but they all have a dark side. If you if you look for it, like with the facilitated communication, there are many cases of of uh, you know estranged uh, spouses using facilitated oh. communication to accuse their ex their ex spouse of sexually abusing the mute child. You know, people have actually spent time in jail based upon such you know spectral evidence. So the you know the 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 gullible underbelly of you know, human nature you know, can have a very, very malignant dark side to it. Here, here. 
Well, I was, I was reading, just to change topics, um, your very excellent column in Scientific American uh, called Skeptic. By the way, it's a, a funny coincidence. My brother Bob and I, you know, who's also on the show, we're on vacation in Florida together, and I said, you know what, Did we really Scientific American and other, I specifically mentioned it, and other mainstream sort of science journals, sort of journals that, that popularize science, really need to have a hardcore skeptical column in it. And it was like, Three or four months later, that your first column came out in Scientific <laughs> American. Out of your predictions. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> it, so uh, it, it clearly, you know, obviously, um, great minds think alike. So the, the 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 need was there, and I've enjoyed every every column since then. The recent one, Hope Springs Eternal, which is about oh, yeah. the Ray Kurzweil and, and others, their their um, you know belief in the rapid progression of technology in the next century and specifically that it will lead perhaps within the reach of people alive today the the lofty goal of immortality and you do not think well of this uh, of this idea well i hope he's right <laughs> right, right right of course <laughs> but i just sign uh, me up right <laughs> i have to disconnect from what i what i hope to be true from what is probably true and well this is you know based on this moore's law that if you you know extrapolate out these kinds of doublings of computer power, information accumulation, and so forth, uh, you, you get to this point in the not-too-distant future when we'll essentially be omniscient or the ability to manipulate uh, entire systems and genomes. And, and uh, well, you see the story in today's paper, Craig, J. Craig Ventner, um, his new genome project to actually create an entire genome for mm-hmm. bacteria. Mm-hmm. You know, this is impressive stuff. But in my opinion, the problem is uh, of aging is... is by orders of magnitude more difficult than anything that we've even contemplated working on for biological systems. Mm-hmm. And that it, and that they're all interrelated and integrated such that, you know, fixing one system uh, isn't like 10% closer to immortality. It, it, it may be even worse because it's tied in with the other nine systems and it's probably more like 100 systems that you'd have to fix all at the same time, all in the particularly the correct way to do it before you could help the aging process, something like that. I just think it's so remote that, uh, you know, it's fun to think about, but I mean, the right. stuff he's doing is, is just ridiculous, these um, you know, these blood purgings and right. antioxidants and, yeah, I, uh, you know, the megavitamins. The, the evidence for all those things, you know, is pretty weak. In well, the, his, uh, his idea, I think, I've, I've read a little bit, I've read some of him, and uh, his, uh, his idea is that if, if you could just, um, you know, with, with the whole nutritional aspect is that if you could just su- survive as long as you can, you know, the first wave of these, of these treatments that could extend your life a little bit, uh, you'd, you'd kind of reach that stage and then you could, you could live a little longer. Then you'd, you'd do something else to reach the, ne- the next plateau until we com- come up with some method to really uh, just essentially just stop aging. And I, and I yeah. agree that his, his nutritional supplements and stuff are kind of, uh, they're definitely overstated. I mean, if you, have a, if you have a healthful diet, you're fine. You don't need to take supplements. So that, that stuff I, I definitely agree with. But it's, well, it's pretty understated. I would say, just to, to separate these two issues, his, his beliefs about supplements is not a little overstated. It's total bunk. Well, let's, let's, let's be fair. The megadosing vitamins, I mean, just, there's, there's an increasing literature now that megadoses of vitamins are actually harmful. I mean, vitamin E, vitamin C, mega doses of these like, seemingly benign well, vitamins he, actually increased your, your certain uh, diseases. Is he actually mega dosing? I'm not, I'm not actually sure if he's actually mega dosing, but that's actually just an incidental uh, thing. That, that's not the thrust of his argument. The thrust. You're right. I mean, that, but we could, sep- we could just dispense with that and say, yeah, his, his, right, his, absolutely. his elixir of life stuff is, is, is not scientific, which is always interesting. The other thing that's interesting about that is here you have a very brilliant person within his field. And just like you know, Linus Pauling, the chemist, they, you step outside of your field of expertise and try to you know, make bold claims in another field, you're likely to really embarrass yourself. And yeah. it's, right. you know, expertise in one field does not give you global expertise. But anyway, but the, uh, the, the other claim, yeah, which is more speculative and, and more interesting, is what will the rate of scientific progress in general be over you know, the next century or so? And, and is immortality within our grasp? It's a, little, yeah, it's a little beyond Moore's law, I think. It's, it's, I think uh, Moore's law can, is subsumed under his law of accelerating returns, where the overall rate of technological of technical progress, uh, you know, is doubling every decade and things. And, and that's the that's the main thrust, and that, that's the main problem I had 
I had with the co- with the uh, with the column was that his uh, law of accelerating returns and why you know why for example you know it might take a, mo- a millennia if at all for any any sort of immortality to come about and I I just think a thousand years uh, or if, you know not at all I I think uh, is yeah. is is unreasonable. another thing the other day that I had not included was that Moore's law somebody's telling me a computer person telling me is that Moore's law applies to hardware not software. That software information systems don't increase that rate. Hmm. Do you know anything about right. that? Yeah, that, right. That, that? That is true, but but there's there's many aspects of of the uh, the computer revolution, not, not not just hardware that that this applies to, and he even applies it to just evolution, you know, evolutionary change hmm. itself. So 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 I see the whole Moore's law thing as just a subset of his of his accelerating returns, and uh, and even if he was off, he's he predicts. 20,000 years of um, of linear progress in in this in this century, and I mean even if he's off by an order of magnitude, that would still be 2,000 years of progress in the next in the yeah, next hundred may, years. Maybe he's rate. off. Maybe he's off by five orders of magnitude. I mean, we just don't know. Well, I mean, if you if you follow, I know you can't. You know, extrapolating trends is uh, precarious. But uh, ever since you know, humans developed technology, it's, it's been following this. So I don't think it's unreasonable to say that, you know, these, you know, these things are, are, are going to continue. And, and he bases it on a couple things that, that make a lot of sense to me, this, this whole accelerating returns. He bases it on, on a couple things. And one of the most powerful is that technology improves exponentially and that uh, you have more powerful tools from one generation to help create the next generation. And if you, if you kind of take that into account, I think... You could see that the tools, the tools that we'll bring to bear in the next generation, will allow, should allow us to do, you know, much more quality research and to compress research into a much a shorter period of time. That that seems reasonable to me, and I, it, it doesn't sound like something that we're gonna, you know, fall off on and not and not put so much effort into. That just that just seems something that we're gonna put a lot of effort into and, and not be satisfied with, uh, you know, incremental gains. We're going to c- continue taking these tools and bring them to bear. What do you think about that, Mike? I'm going to be really pissed if all this happens like the year after I die. Right. <laughs> that's what I said. That's what I said two weeks ago, Bob, when we were talking you know, about that's this. My big, that's, my, that's one of my biggest concerns. I liked your point that a lot of these guys, a lot of these prognosticators are saying, you know, it's in, in my lifetime, in our, in our generation, this is going to happen. And you're right. That right. should raise your skepticism when someone says that. And uh, and I actually I hope that it's in our lifetime. But I I think that uh, hopefully my daughter you know in my daughter's lifetime she'll she'll have that opportunity or maybe or maybe her children. But I think I, I think it's it's potentially we potentially can be the last generation. It's possible even if we're not, our kids or our grandkids could conceivably be be this last generation that uh, that really has to deal with death death in a, in a meaningful way. And that just seems. It's so poignant to me that we could be, you know, we could be, you know, the, the last of the dinosaurs, and uh, year, year, <laughs> right. now, you know, years from now, people will say, "Oh God, if they just lived a little bit longer, they would have, they would have made it," you know. And, and it's, po- I think it's, possible. I think that's entirely possible. I'll tell you, if people stop dying, and uh, we're going to have a whole nother bevel of problems to worry about. That's for sure. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean. <laughs> So what do, you, what do you say to people? We, you know, we potentially might have a population problem, so please kill yourself. I know you can live as long as you want, but please make room for the next generation. But What's the compa- birth control pills. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. Right. Or move to the moon of Titan or something. <laughs> I mean, but what's the carrying capacity of the Earth or the solar system? I mean, what what percentage of the United States is populated? It's like 7%. You know, people don't realize. They think, oh, you know, 40%, 30%. But it's really a small percentage of... You know, if you, if you consider the, you know, say if, if nanotechnology, when that eventually comes about, you know, we'll, we'll be able to build, you know, build habitats in deserts and in oceans. I mean, we'll, I, I think the, the Earth can conceivably support, you know, p- potentially, you know, tens and hundreds of billions of people comfortably given the, these technologies that eventually uh, should come about. Is the, so human populations. Fact- <laughs> yeah, is the human factor ever taken into these equations? You know, man is going to screw things up along the way. You know, regardless of the amount of technology that they have achieved, and there are bound to be setbacks, perhaps. You know, based that, on that. that, that's always possible. We could we could nuke ourselves out of exist out of existence tomorrow, and that and that's possible too. We just you know we, we got to get to the point where we don't have all our all our eggs in one basket. Uh, you know, it's it's inherently somewhat dangerous to you know 
to be living in one place. And eventually, eventually we'll deal with that. We'll have orbiting, you know, we'll have stations orbiting with the colonies around Earth. And if there was a catastrophe, at least some remnant of, of humanity would survive. But that's just beyond our well beyond our means now. But eventually, it won't it won't be a problem. But uh, now, my my problem with you know, sort of speculating this far into the future is that although history has shown that the rate of progress you know does it does increase and accelerate, it also has shown that you know people are awful at predicting the ways in which it's going to accelerate and which technologies will take off and which ones don't. I mean, I think if you asked scientists and educated people 50 or 60 years ago if we will have cured cancer by 2005, I think almost everyone would have said yes. You know, remember, we were the generation that were supposed to be flying around in hover cars and, and those sorts of things, and yet nobody predicted the Internet. Um, I don't, you know, it does. I don't see any theoretical reason why um, immortality is impossible. So that leaves the door open. But I agree with Michael that it's a lot more difficult than any of any of the writers who are talking about the prospects of immortality think that it is. And I don't know. I don't know of any real, you know, like medical or biological researchers who are saying. Who, who like really have a handle on the complexity of humanity at a at the cellular level and the biochemical level? Who are saying, oh yeah, you know, in 50 years or whatever, in some short period of time, this is a problem that we can that we can solve. A thousand years might be too long, but who knows? You'll see it out there. Look, look up. Um, I think his name is DeGray or DeBray. He's uh, he's uh, I mean, he's not a, P, a biologist, but he is extremely well versed in biology, and he's well. He's my premise was no biologist. Well. Um, this, this guy is essentially, essentially is a biologist. His, his wife is a biologist, and he's studied. I mean, he's made it. This is his lifelong project. He's created. I think it's called the uh, the Methuselah Project, or uh, um, something where he he actually he determined. All right, here are the ten. Here are the ten things that happen within a cell. Here are the ten things that you can attribute aging to. And he he lists all these ten cellular you know mechanisms or these events that uh, yeah that we know of really, that really contribute to aging. And if we tackle these one at a time, I think that's a reasonable approach to to, to straightforwardly dealing with with uh, with aging and uh, senescence. You know, by t- by tackling these one at a time, you're turning it into a man- manageable. Um, I, I look at it like project. the study program. It's a long shot, and let's let's put a little bit of money into it because it's worth looking into. But right. uh, I wouldn't count on it. Right, <laughs> right. Very good analogy. Yeah, you, good analogy. Uh, you definitely shouldn't. Yeah, you definitely shouldn't be betting your, your life on it. It could it could take a while to get there. But um, I mean, from what from what I've gathered from it, it, it it's potentially possible to happen a lot sooner than a lot of people think. And this law of accelerating returns really really drove it home when you think that we could potentially um, accumulate centuries and centuries or thousands of years of, of uh, technological progress in the next in the next hundred years or so because people don't people think linearly when they think of progress they're not thinking of historically how it's how it's been exponentially increasing well the, the one thing though that the things that are not taken into consideration with those kind of rosy projections are that even though our abilities increase in a non-linear fashion, the problems that we're tackling are getting tougher and more difficult. We've we've picked the low-hanging fruit, as it were, and now we're trying to tackle more and more difficult problems. The amount of information that's required to solve these problems is, is increasing exponentially. And and in, in, although in some ways we're sort of getting, it, t- it takes more work, more and more and more work to get the same kind of returns back. We're able to do that, but um, I don't think that that really predicts the kind of you know 20,000 years of progress in one century just seems out of control to me, uh, based upon those factors. Which I don't think that they're they're taking into consideration. Okay, well, well, I think that that's all the time that Michael has for us this week. Uh, Michael Shermer, thank you very much for joining us on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Well, you're welcome, and thank you for having me. Uh, if you want to learn more about Michael Shermer, his society, and his uh, books and articles, you can visit his website, www.skeptic.com, uh, and that will contain more information than you can handle. Uh, it's an excellent skeptical resource and, and scientific resource. Again, thanks for being on our show. Thank you, thank Michael. You. Thank you, Michael. Good night. Take care. Good night. Well, that was wonderful having Michael Shermer on the show. I hope uh, we can have him as a guest again in the future, and, and along with other prominent skeptics. Uh, perhaps we can invite James Randi on our show one day. I'd like that. Uh, Randi, you know, as uh, any of the listeners may or may not know, runs the Million Dollar Psychic Challenge. Basically, if you can prove that you have paranormal abilities...
and you can prove it under proper observation. Uh, he'll give you a million dollars, and you know it's in escrow, you know, held by attorneys, so he can't just say, you know, no, I'm not going to give you the money. Um, and in fact, the New England Skeptical Society often does uh, screening testing uh, experiments for the, the million dollar challenge. Have we not also um, put money into that million dollar challenge? We, you know, we did, and when before um, the the million dollar challenge used to be the hundred thousand dollars. Well, it used to be pledges, the, right? Yeah, it, it was it was done by pledges, and we pledged ten thousand dollars to it. Okay. But Which you know, s- but at some point a few years ago, a an unnamed donor essentially gave the James Randi Education Foundation a million dollars. I wonder if it's Carson. I think yeah, it was, the, the what, rumor that was is that it was, that it was Johnny Carson. That's the rumor. He was, he was great. He, well, Randy's told us, you know, face to face, that he's received many generous uh, contributions from Carson. At, at the hundred thousand dollar level, just checks would occasionally just arrive from him. But right, sure. Um, and the, the, the Randy runs his group off the interest on that million dollars, but that million dollars is sitting there. Uh, I don't know if prior pledges are also thrown into the to the pot or not, or if it's just a million dollars now. But in any case, I have no fear that, that our money will, will be snatched up at any time. Mm. But um, some of what we were saying you know, with, with Dr. Shermer about the idiomotor effect reminded me of the most recent test that we had done. We, there was a couple, a, a husband and wife team, that claimed that they could essentially operate a Ouija board while blindfolded. They could ask the spirits what uh, a question and and the the planchette the little the little thing that you hold your fingers on would move around the board and spell out you know cogent grammatical answers so that was a that was a, a pretty testable uh claim this is certainly something that we've heard before uh the whole Ouija board thing and it was a pretty trivial matter uh, i know Perry was not there with us but bob um scored the questions evan videotaped it uh and you know, I monitored the protocol. And basically, what we did is we we had them use. We actually, we had a couple of different Ouija boards, but we ended up using a standard Ouija board for most of the test. And we just I blindfolded them in such a way that they couldn't peek. And lo and behold, uh, their powers vanished mysteriously. They couldn't spell. They couldn't put two letters together, let alone spell a single word. Never mind Shock. cogent answers. Shock. We were that's shocked. When spe- that's when the special pleading uh, kicked in. That's when the special, yeah. Well, you'll notice that. Well, did, you, yeah. did you use appropriate protocol to make sure their powers were okay that night? They, they, agreed, well. that er- they agreed that everything was suitable for them and that, that there shouldn't be any problem. Okay. And they actually did not resort to the fact that, uh, as, as far as I recall, that, um, oh, tonight, th- tonight it just didn't work. I mean, th- the husband I remember seemed genuinely. Surprised that this ability she, vanished. You, well, hang on, but you guys remember she had a wrist, an, an arm support device. A, no, just a, a, just, her, just a splint on one of her fingers. One of her fingers was split. She had. Is that what it was? She had a boo boo on one of her fingers, <laughs> but she she didn't think that that would affect anything. The husband was definitely very confident going into the test. The wife did not seem like she was in a good mood, and. Um, during the test, of course, yeah, they had no way to know how they were doing during the test. Afterwards, we showed them the video of them attempting to operate you know, the board. And the husband I was shocked. He was shocked. The wife didn't see He really that. believed it was going to work, but the, the, the wife was a different story. Yeah, no, afterwards, afterwards, he did say, could we try it without the blindfold just to see if it works? And it didn't work. He said, well, maybe our powers are just off tonight. He did do that afterwards, oh, but yeah, afterwards right. doesn't count. You know, when when you failed the test, coming up with excuses then. I mean, everybody does that. Everyone comes up with some lame old excuses to why they failed. They never say, "Oh, I gee, I guess we don't really have any psychic yeah, powers." Well, and you have them state there as part of the uh, as part of the information ahead of time. You have them state to what percentage of success they normally. Uh, normally occurs, and I think they said like 80% of the time, 90% they're correct. In, in and we the have them sign off on the protocol. They sign it and say, yes, this is an acceptable protocol. This is a fair test of our power, and the criteria for saying that we succeeded or failed is reasonable and fair, and we usually give them a wide margin. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's not. It's well, it was, this being the preliminary test. This is the. It's a preliminary test. So we don't. Even, we yeah. We're not even obligated to do it to a one in a million probability. Yeah. No. Uh, I'm saying that they state themselves that they were 
it was something like 80% of the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. 80% of the information yeah. they get is, it turns did, out did to be factual. Did this test take place at your home, Stephen? Yes, it did. Then maybe there, it, it didn't work because the, the skeptical shield around your house that protects you from being abducted. <coughs> I didn't tell them about the skeptical shield, though, so they did not <laughs> invoke that as an excuse. I've got to get me one of those And Perry, shields. that is a secret. We're going to have to uh, erase this from the podcast <laughs> now, but thank you very much. Now that's a, gentlemen, if you go to thenest.com, read what you find there, and begin to live your life by the basic principles of skepticism, you too can have a shield. You two can have a skeptical shield. In fact, we'll sell you one. Protected from abductions <laughs> and possessions. In, in fact, there's, there's, you know, a couple of different people are selling, you know, semi-joke insurance, basically anti-abduction insurance Absolutely. that they'll pay out if you can prove, you know, that you were abducted by aliens. Uh, oh, I is, like it. That's a pretty safe bet. It doesn't but work unless you're a true non-believer. A true non-believer. Um, <laughs> it is true that skeptics are protected from various nasty phenomena like alien abductions. We're they never haunted. We're never haunted by ghosts. Right. Possessed. We're never possessed by demons. And that's why. That's the only reason I'm skeptical. Oh, I'm so afraid of that stuff. That to I protect and, yourself and we, from the boogeyman. And we never spontaneously combust. We never spontaneously combust, never. that's true. And, and our relatives never spontaneously combust either. Or our pets. <laughs> Go figure. So there, there, there are some advantages to skepticism. It's not all about pretty women and fast cars. <laughs> no. no. Not even close. <laughs> <laughs> about pretty cars and fast women. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, that, I believe, is our show for this week. Uh, thanks again for being on the show, uh, Evan, Perry, and Bob. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. Until next week, this is The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For more information on this and other episodes, see our website at www.theness.com.